17 to 20. Before we open this up, though, I wanted to uh, just uh, highlight a few things uh, in the life of our church and our largest ministry, Grace Christian School. I uh, noted that Randy Carlberg and Nate Davis kind of headed up to Fairbanks earlier in the week to uh, be a part of the track event. And I, I think there was something note, of noteworthy uh, from that event that the, the boys track and field that they won state this year. So uh, that was outstanding. Yes, let's give them a hand. And the girls were runner-ups as well, so let's applaud for them also. I am just thankful for what they were able to accomplish. It's outstanding. On a more sober note, uh, there is a family that's associated through the school. They aren't a part of our church. It's um, the Jones and it's Jeremy and Jennifer Jones. And Jennifer battled with cancer for years and years. And actually, their daughter, they have three children. Their daughter uh, is good friends with one of my daughters, um, Emmy, in kindergarten. So we've been praying especially for them. But Jennifer um, passed and is now with the Lord. She died uh, last night at 749. If you know the family, we can be in prayer for them. I don't have any more details than that. Jeremy uh, remaining as the father, being strong for the children. He is an uh, Anchorage um, fireman, so he is a, a great guy. And anyway, we need to be in prayer for that family. And uh, I want to do something that's, uh, I, I know there's precedent for it in our church, but I haven't done this since uh, we've been here. And I want us to stand now, and I want you just to stay where you are and kind of greet the people around you for a few moments. So let's stand and greet each other in the Lord this morning. Good morning. It's familiar. All right, let's uh, return to our seats and uh, open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. The title of my message this morning is Breaking Legalism's Spell, Understanding Jesus and the Law. Breaking Legalism's Spell. And follow as I read verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5. These are the words directly from the lips of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I, came, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one yota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, as I said, this was a hard passage to interpret this week, so I took it on as a challenge, but I think the more that you understand 
what Jesus is doing, and the more that it unfolds, it becomes more of a freeing passage for the believer rather than a stifling or suffocating one. For instance, look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That kind of verse can be unnerving to just read out of context. It can be shocking to us. And I think Jesus was trying to shock the crowd that was before him. It can be a little bit depressing because all of us have a little bit of a Pharisee that lives inside of us, right? We all struggle with a little bit of legalism in our lives. Some people are absolutely suffocated by legalism. And it's very difficult to see through. They are under the spell of legalism. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians 3. He was addressing believers and he said to the church, who has bewitched you? Galatians 3.1. Who has bewitched you? Who has put you under this spell of legalism, he's saying. He says in verse 2, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now Jesus in this section is trying to teach people that you obey the law of God and you see the law of God by faith, not by performance. Because if you try to get yourself into the kingdom or keep yourself into the kingdom, you're bewitched. You're under Satan's spell. It's Phariseeism. It's Satan twisting the scripture to say, you know what? If you were just good enough, then you could get into heaven or keep yourself there. Instead, look up at verse 3 again. Jesus is preaching the gospel through these beatitudes saying, you need to be poor in spirit. The person who enters the kingdom of heaven is a person who realizes they can't do it in their own strength. You need grace. You're a needy, helpless beggar drinking the bounty of God's grace in the gospel. And that's what brings us in to heaven. We know by the gospel that we could never be good enough. And so Jesus is trying to shock the Pharisee out of you. <laughs> and these words, Jesus isn't mincing words. He's being very clear and very straightforward to get us to sit up and pay attention. So I would just ask you this morning, follow along. This was a hard passage to interpret. So I want you to sort of lock in and dig deep and follow along because it will build towards the application at the end. All right, if you're taking notes, Jesus breaks the spell of legalism answering two questions. And here's the first question. How Jesus relates to the law. How does he relate to the law of God? That's where he begins. He's going to talk about himself in terms of the Old Testament. And then he's going to talk about the believer in terms of the Old Testament. But he starts with himself in verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Let's stop there. You know, what Jesus is doing, and remember, this is his first official formal sermon, his first kind of inaugural sermon in public ministry. What he's doing is he's propping up what the critics were saying about him. And he's propping up their arguments so he can knock it down. That's what any good um, debater does. They prop up an argument and then they knock it down. They raise up the straw man and knock it over. And that's what he's doing. He's propping up the Pharisees' accusations against him, almost before they can say them. The Pharisees were going to spread a lot of gossip about Jesus, and they were going to say things like, look, who does this guy think he is? He's not even a Pharisee. 
He's, in fact, kind of a rebel without a cause. He's showing up and he's healing deliberately on the Sabbath. What does he think he's doing? He's trying to destroy or undercut the law of God. Which the law, by the way, would be Genesis to Malachi. All of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that Pentateuch, that first five books, and then all of the poetic books and all of the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament. Those 39 books, that's what he's talking about. And he's saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, but the Pharisees would say, look, he's teaching on his own authority. He's not appealing to any teachers. He's just making this up as he goes along. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy it. Jesus is saying all of the 39 books of the Old Testament, in fact, I came to fulfill. Look at the second half of verse 17. He came to fulfill all of the law of God. And he's making a sweeping statement saying it's all of 39, all the 39 Old Testament books. He didn't come to abolish it or destroy it. He came to fulfill it. Now, let me say this. The Pharisees will not understand Jesus' explanation here. Because Jesus is giving a very spiritual explanation. And the Pharisees were not spiritually minded. They were all about performance. They were all about propping themselves up in their own self-made religion. In their do-gooding in the Old Testament, right? And they even added to the Old Testament with their own commentaries and their own extra set of rules that they could try to live out to prop themselves up. So Jesus makes his point here in verses 17 and 18 by saying he came to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, for Jesus to fulfill the law, some people say he fulfilled it by perfect obedience. He fulfilled it by obeying the law perfectly. They split the law into three different categories and they say there's a moral section of the law, there's a ceremonial section, and a civil section. Morally, you have the Ten Commandments and all of the explanation in the Old Testament about the Ten Commandments. Civil laws were in the Old Testament in terms of how Old Testament Israel related to each other in manners and customs and ways and means as a society. And then ceremonially, you have the ceremonial sacrificial system where lambs were slain and where temples were basically butcher shops day in and day out where people were spilling blood because they knew their sin was ever before them. And then you have Yom Kippur and the yearly sacrifices that all were symbolic for towards the Messiah and the sacrifice that was to come. So you have the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial category of the law of God. And Jesus was born under this system. Galatians 4.4, 4, it says he was born under the law. And we know from scripture that Jesus, he obeyed the law perfectly. He did, ceremonially, civilly. And morally, since childhood. And this is sort of portrayed at the beginning of his public ministry. You remember uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus showed up and wanted to be baptized. And Matthew chapter 3 says that he approached John and John tried to prevent him. And say, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said, let it be so now, watch this, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Same word. He was obeying the moral 
law. He was obeying God's will and he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And the Father affirmed him in that. The heavens opened up, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we know by these statements that Jesus fulfilled the law in perfect moral obedience and civil obedience. And he also fulfilled the law of God ceremonially. Remember, he was the Lamb of God. Now, when he taught in Matthew chapter 5, he had not yet died on the cross as the Lamb who was slain. But we know as New Testament Christians looking back that he fulfilled the ceremonial law perfectly. Hebrews 10 says this, every every priest stands at his daily service offering, how often? Repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12 of Hebrews 10, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So did he fulfill the ceremonial law? Absolutely. All of the ceremonial system was a picture of Jesus Christ. He came and did it by dying on the cross once for all. So he fulfilled the law ceremonially. But let me say this. I said all that to say that's not Jesus's point right here. Now, the Bible does teach that he fulfilled the law in those ways, but that's not the point he's making. He's being more broad and, and more generic about the Old Testament. And he, in essence, is saying this. All 39 books of the Old Testament were a prophecy about me. That's what he's saying. From Genesis to Malachi, it was all really about me. Jesus is saying in his inaugural sermon here, his first sermon initiating his three-year ministry, all that you've studied in the Old Testament, directly or indirectly, was about me. It was prophetic. So it's a prophetic fulfillment. He's fulfilling the Old Testament. And he did it directly and indirectly. When Jesus rose again, he talked about this again in Luke 24. He says, look, to the two on the road to to Emmaus, he said, beginning, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He used all of their scriptures, all of Genesis to Malachi, to talk about himself. And then later on in Luke 24, it talks about how he went to the rest of the disciples. And he said this, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Watch this. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, listen. All of your Old Testament, the first five books, all of the poetic books, the Psalms, the the, uh, poetic literature that's throughout, all of the prophets, the prophets who basically taught the law and then they prophesied of things to come, the major and minor prophets, all of that was about Jesus. What does this do to the discussion here? Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to take your Old Testament away I came to show you the meaning of the Old Testament, and the meaning is me. It's not do-gooding. It's not a performance religion. It's a religion that's based on faith and believing in Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
Micah 5.2 gives us a specific prophecy. We know a lot of specific prophecies that connect the Old Testament with Jesus, right? Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, and then you have Micah 5.2 that connects with Matthew 2.5 where it says that Jesus was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It connects the two perfectly, and that's a specific prophecy. But there's a lot of generic prophecy in the Old Testament as well. Watch this one, Hosea 11.1. In Hosea 11.1, it's talking about the history of Israel. And it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my son. That's talking about Israel. That's talking about Israel being rescued under the tyranny of Pharaoh, being called out from Egypt. But you know what that's really talking about? Matthew 2.15 explains the real deeper meaning of Hosea. Matthew 2 is talking about Jesus and how he was protected in a safe haven in Egypt. And it says he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, quoting Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. So what was the point of the prophecy? The point of the prophecy, ultimately, though it was talking historically about Israel, was ultimately to point to Jesus Christ. You know, it reminds me of a Sunday school teacher who taught in Australia, this lady, and she was trying to mix things up with her five-year-old Sunday school class. And, you know, she, she would ask questions at the beginning of class to sort of spawn interest. And she said, hey, what's gray, furry, dark, with a dark, leathery nose and climbs up trees to eat gum leaves? And, you know, the class just sat there in stunned silence, kind of got awkward for a few minutes there. Finally, this little girl slips up her hand and says, Teacher, I know that the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like you're talking about a koala bear. (laughs) See, now I know that there's a lot to the Old Testament, historically, poetically, prophetically. But in one sense, in a very real sense, all of the Bible is a revelation about the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, instead of being a failed system that Israel couldn't follow, is really part of the redemption story. And it's a prelude to the cross and the need for Jesus Christ and his righteousness, what we couldn't do on our own. Look at how expansive Jesus is being in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know what he's saying? He's saying that all of the Old Testament is still in play until the end of the world. Until heaven and earth pass away, everything is still in play. You say, how does that work? I mean, Jesus is saying, I'm definitely not abolishing the law. I'm not destroying it. I'm saying it's still at work until the world ends. Well, how does that work in terms of the ceremonial system? I mean, you know, we're we're not civilly, we're not adjudicating things like Israel would have, right? We're not, we're not executing people for breaking the Old Testament law. That's like a civil dimension. And then ceremonially, we're not obligated to offer sacrifices to God. So how is that still in play? Let me put it to you this way. Every time that you read about a lamb being sacrificed in the temple, you know what that should remind you of? The Lamb of God. That should draw you to worship. Because we know 
the gospel. When we read the Old Testament now, we know the climax of the story and we should read it that way. We should read it with gospel lenses on, understanding that the sacrifices and the prophecies and the stories really were pointing to the Messiah. Jesus really nails it down by saying, not a yoda nor a dot will pass from the law. You know how many yodas there are in the Old Testament? Well, I didn't before somebody I read, you know, documented it. But 66,420 yodas. That's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then a dot, which is also called a tittle. You've heard the phrase jot and tittle. The dot is the tiny little mark. It's an extension that distinguishes one Hebrew letter from another. You know, it's like the slash um, that makes a capital H. Or actually, it's a little extension, you know, that I would have to make correctly when I took Hebrew quizzes in seminary. That would distinguish one letter from another. It's very hard. You know, you're working from left to right. I mean, give me a break. If I don't make that little line, I get it wrong, right? But that's how important these things are. It distinguishes one letter from the other. It's like a serif in modern English typeface. Now, if you're reading this as a legalist, if you're duped and bewitched under the spell of legalism, then you're going to read a verse like verse 18, where it says, not one yoda or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And it's going to suffocate you. You're going to think, man, things, things just got ramped up somehow. It's almost like Jesus just sort of is taking a sidebar from the gospel. I mean, we know it's all about grace and grace-motivated obedience. But right here, Jesus is really calling me to ramp things up and to perform, right? That's how a legalist reads verse 18, which is not his point at all. He's saying that all of the Old Testament down to the jot and tittle was about Jesus was about him. That's what he's saying. It's prophetic. And he fulfilled it. All the Old Testament law pointed to Jesus, points to Jesus, and will continue to point to Jesus until the world comes to an end. And then we'll see Jesus in heaven for all of eternity. The law has always been about him. He was fulfilling it when he first came. And he's ultimately going to fulfill it when he comes again. You think about the minor prophets and all of the talk about the day of the Lord. That's about Jesus coming again. And that's prophecy about our Savior who's going to come and destroy his enemies that will remain on the earth. So Jesus is relating to the law by saying, you know what? He's the meaning of the law. Instead of abolishing the law, I'm telling you, I came to fulfill it. It takes faith to to see this, how Jesus relates to the law. And it also takes faith to see the second question that Jesus is answering. And that is, how do we relate to the law? How do you relate to the Old Testament law? You know, there was a heretic in the early church named Marcion who said, believers in the New Testament, they don't need to relate to the Old Testament law at all. So let's just rip it out. So they ripped it out of their Bibles under this guy Marcion and all of the Old Testament quotations or quotes in the New Testament were ripped out as well under Marcion. But we we do relate to the Old Testament and Jesus wants us to. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Let's stop there. Again, as a legalist, if you're sort of under Satan's spell here, 
If you're thinking like a Pharisee, if your inner Pharisee is coming out of you, you're going to look at that and go, wow, I don't need to relax the law of God at all. Even the, the, the you know, sort of translation here, using the word relax, it, it can really sort of tempt a person to think legalistically and say, I don't need to relax. I need to stay sort of uh, hyped up about the law of God and stressed out. The word relax means to loosen. It's the idea that Jesus is saying, look, whoever unravels the true meaning of the law is least in the kingdom. That's what he's saying. Whoever's butchering the true intent of the law is least. And who's he talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees. He's pushing back on teachers who were teaching that you obey by performance. These Pharisees were saying, look, you get right with God by doing more and more. By being more precise with the law of God. And you know what Jesus is saying? No. Obedience is where you go deeper and deeper on a heart level with the law of God. And I'll return to that in the end. If you're a legalist, you read verse 19 and it's suffocating. But Jesus meant to bring grace in his teaching here. He's condemning the Pharisees. That's what really opens up what he means at the beginning of verse 19. The Pharisees were the ones who were relaxing the law of God. And what he meant by relaxing there is undoing the law by by promoting a superficial obedience to the law of God. These are the people that are least in the kingdom. And what he means by that is they're really not in the kingdom of God at all. If you're least, you're really not in in this case. He was condemning the Pharisees who were saying that the law is really a moral code of ethics and all of their traditions were raised up to be authoritative and these traditions became heavy burdens that were tied onto people's shoulders. The word Pharisee means separatist and so they were saying, look, we are so morally good that we are separate from you and if you want to be like us and be in the kingdom, then you need to obey all of our traditions. Luke 18 is a sort of clear example of the heart of a Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisee and the tax collector went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee said, I thank you that I am not like other men, probably pointing to the tax collector, saying other men like extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. And verse 12 says, the Pharisee said, I fast twice a week. You know what? In the Old Testament law, there's no requirement for anyone to fast twice a week. There was actually a a fast that was scheduled about once a quarter, but the Pharisee is ramping things up and saying, you know what, I'm going above and beyond the law of God, and I fast twice a week, so I should be accepted. He said, I give tithes tithes of all I get. This was relaxing the law. What did Jesus think of the Pharisees? If you really want to know, turn to Matthew 23. You want to kind of know where Jesus condemns the Pharisees? It's in Matthew 23. I used to hear the sort of Bible teacher way of remembering that is, you know, Matthew 2 and 3, woe to the Pharisee. But anyway, that's for Sunday school. All right, Matthew 23. And look at verse 18. Actually, look, start at verse 23 of Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Remember, 
Jesus isn't promoting more and more. He's promoting deeper and deeper. He wants people to see the law as to be obeyed on a heart level. Look at verse 23. They ignored the weightier matters, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. So bang from the heart. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. He was condemning the Pharisees for, you know, being precise with their tithe and and with their pomp and circumstance with the law. And they were neglecting their parents. They were neglecting being faithful to provide for their own. He calls them blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a, a camel. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self Indulgence, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Calls them in verse 27, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. I was thinking about this and I was trying to, you know, bring this current. You know, there are so many celebrities today who look the part, right? They're all dressed up. But then if you see them sort of uh, in an off-camera you know, off studio shot, you know, sometimes these celebrities, they just look like us, right? On Saturday mornings or whatever. They're, they're people. And these Pharisees, they were trying to prop themselves up with self-righteousness. My wife alluded to uh, something that she saw, I guess, online or a show or something. It was Kathy Lee Gifford. Do you remember Kathy Lee and Regis and Kathy Lee? And Kathy Lee Gifford was trying to make a statement about how people dress themselves up and they look different, you know, on camera. And she actually did a, uh, a show with a colleague and they both did not wear makeup for the show. And the husband had a real problem with that. <laughs> Anyway, because she, you know, looked like everybody else. And, and anyway, makeup obviously does wonders for people on camera. In the same way, Pharisees dressed themselves up with their own self-righteousness. Verse 23 again of Matthew 23. They neglected the weightier things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This was relaxing the law of God. Jesus is saying basically this. The law of God, the Old Testament, was all about him. He's the meaning of it. And so, with that as the basis, surely you're not going to make the law of God some sort of superficial moral code. You know what Paul called this? He said, look, in Philippians 3, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, Paul was the stuff in terms of being a Pharisee. No one could poke any holes in his religion. He was the guy, right? He was trained under Gamaliel, the top teacher of the Pharisees. And he was a straight-A student in terms of righteousness. And even attacked the Christian movement in the name of God. You know what he called all of this? He called it dung. He called it dung. I won't expand beyond that. Dung, rubbish, scubalon. It was, it was just putrid, gross to him. That's what he was saying. It's gross. Rubbish. And he contrasted that with knowing Jesus Christ. So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul was all about. Now he wasn't, Paul was not antinomian. He wasn't against the law. He was all about obeying the law, but you obey it from the heart, through the eyes of faith. And that's what Jesus is appealing for here in verse 19. Who you don't want to be is you don't want to be someone who relaxes 
the law of God. You're least in the kingdom. You don't want to be someone who's teaching superficial legalism. But Jesus goes on to show who you do want to be. In verse 19, he says, But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, Whoever obeys the law of God with a heart like the Beatitudes, that's a person who's great in the kingdom of heaven. You obey understanding that you're poor in spirit, that you're mourning over your sin, that you're meek, that you're needy, you're hungering for righteousness. It's an appetite thing. It's not being on the treadmill trying to, oh, I need to be right with God and do it in your own strength. He's not saying that. He's saying, look, we're powerless, we're needy people who obey because God has transformed our hearts. I mean, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us and gave his son for us. That's why. This is who we want to be. Obeying the law through the grid of the Beatitudes. King David knew this. Old Testament saints knew this. They knew that the issue was obeying the law by faith. That's the remnant of Israel. The people who actually got it. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, ultimately repented in Psalm 51, um, is his confession. Verse 16 and 17, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When you understand Jesus' intent of the law, this makes perfect sense. But when I read it, you know, before this understanding years ago, it was like, man, what, what gives? You know, did the requirement of the sacrificial system just go away? No. David is saying, look, if I could choose between being broken and doing superficial penance right now, I'm going to be broken. And that's really what you're after, isn't it, God? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And that's how we need to be. Don't you fall into some Phariseeism sometime? Sometimes? Don't you think, you know, okay, you know, I mean, perhaps you're sitting there right now. I've done this. You know, you hear a sermon and the word of God's kind of churning in your mind and the spirit of God is, is pointing things out in your life and you're going, okay, all right, this week I'm going to have a daily quiet time. I'm going to do it, God. And you know what that is? That's performance-oriented religion. It's not what you want to do. You don't want to make camp promises to God to try to ramp up your spiritual health. You want to return to the Beatitudes and say, God, break my heart. Continue to break my heart. Continue to to show me my sin so I can repent of it. And you want to keep it in terms of a a vertical dynamic in, in a communal relationship with your Lord. And that's where the Lord is growing you. Not in terms of performance. Now, Jesus is teaching this, how they are to approach the law in a very unique transition point. You know, you have the old covenant system, and it's sort of still in play as Jesus is teaching, as his feet are on the ground for for this time period. But it's also the dawning of the new covenant. And he's saying, look, I'm here to fulfill. I'm to fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. I'm the fulfillment of that. And he would ultimately do that in the cross. But what we're going to be learning for the next few weeks in Matthew's, Matthew 5 through 7 is what it looks like to obey the law of God from the heart. 
in the new covenant, as a Christian in the church, how do you deal with the issue of thou shalt not murder? And really the seed of that is not being angry. How do you deal with the issue of thou shalt not commit adultery? And really the seed of that is not being lustful and so forth and so on. Issues like divorce and oaths and retaliation. What does that look like through the eyes of the gospel with a heart that is broken? This is what Paul called in 1 Corinthians 9, the law of Christ. It's obedience that comes from a transformed heart. Verse 20 is the climax of Jesus' teaching here. We've seen who you don't want to be and who you want to be. And then finally, this is who you'd better be. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, if your inner Pharisee is at play, if you are bewitched, you're choking hard on this verse because you're going, man, I know how good the Pharisees were and I know I can't exceed what they did. I fall down every day. But that's not thinking rightly because Jesus is using a play on words to shock our Phariseeism out of us. And the key to understanding verse 20 is defining correctly what he means by the word exceeds. And I already have kind of given this punchline away. John Stott is the one I got it from. The Pharisees had an MO with the law of God and their modus operandi was to do more and more and more of it and to add more to it. And instead of doing more and more, Jesus is calling us to exceed the scribes and Pharisees by going deeper and deeper by faith, by faith and a soft heart that wants to obey God. In other words, Jesus wasn't abolishing or doing away with the law of God. He wasn't adding stricter requirements with the law of God. He was targeting the crowds and wanting them to examine their hearts and ask themselves, What are you trusting in? And I'm asking you this morning, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own performance to save you or to grow you spiritually? Because that is, that is being under the spell of legalism. That's not the right way to think. The Old Testament law was all about Jesus. And so we are now to obey the law of God, which is the law of Christ by faith in Jesus. A person who is a believer who's bewitched by this lie that we are to perform ourselves into righteousness, they're leading a suffocated life. Are you leading a suffocated life? Are you feeling sort of this stranglehold around your spiritual life by trying to perform and make yourself good enough for God? That would be relaxing the law of God. All other religions, apart from Christianity, relax the law of God. They're all about performance. Let's not be like all other religions. Let's begin with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, as an unbeliever, if you are bewitched, if you, under the, if you are under the spell of legalism, then you perhaps have convinced yourself that you are safe and that you are going to heaven. You are part of the kingdom of God because look at how much good I do. My good outweighs the bad in my life, and so I must be safe, and I must be headed to heaven. It's the most unsafe place to be. You don't want to be thinking like that. It's lying to yourself and trusting in yourself to get you to heaven when God, all he wants is for us to trust him 
and come through Christ. All right, let's apply this now. I title my take-home points this way. We're killing the little Pharisee in all of us. First of all, a way to kill your Phariseeism is to examine how you relate to the law of God. And I want to reorient how you relate to your Old Testaments. You know, the the pages in the Old Testament should be as well-worn as those in the New Testament. And the way to do that is by reading your Old Testament as Christian scripture. What do I mean by that? You need to have a heart like the guy in Psalm 119 that said, I love the law of God. It's like honey on my lips to my tongue. And the way to do that is by reading your Old Testament and look, looking for symbols and types and pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. When you read the story about the pillar and the cloud that, that led is the Israelites through to the promised land, you should be thinking that's a picture of Jesus Christ. The rock that spilled the water so they could drink, that's a picture of Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system portrays Jesus Christ. King David, he's a prototype king. The first king that was, that was basic prophecy of the king of kings and lord of lords. When Israel made it to the promised land, that's a foretaste of heaven. You're reading the Old Testament in terms of the redemption story. Redemption story. When you, when you read about the fall in Genesis 3, that sin that permeated all of mankind, you know what that did? That created the need for Jesus Christ. The major prophets, the minor prophets, they were all talking about Jesus. The Ten Commandments, it really is a picture of the character of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of the Proverbs, all the wisdom and knowledge of God is found in who? Jesus Christ. It's all a picture of him. Secondly, under this point, look for applications in view of the gospel. When we read about the fall and sin, we should be thinking about the sin in our own lives and how grace alone is the answer for it. You know, being saved by grace alone is a golden thread theme threaded from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament was never a performance-based system. There were moral requirements and civil and ceremonial requirements, but that could only be lived out by grace alone. Abraham, remember him? He is the picture of faith where it says in Genesis chapter 12 that he was justified by faith. By faith, he was given the righteousness of God. And so we are in the New Testament church, sons of Abraham. All right, number two. Declare war on your performance-based Christianity. You say, I'm not performance-based. Well, ask yourself this question this week. Ask yourself, do I really believe that by doing more, I am pleasing to God? You know, real Christianity is opposed to performance-based religion. It just is. And so you should ask yourself, am I thinking like a Pharisee, if I do more, I'm going to be more pleasing to God. If the answer is yes, at any one point, you need to kill that thought and retrain your thinking. You really should. Real Christianity always grows out of the gospel soil. And so the way to re-grasp and maybe um, something to study as we're going through Matthew 5 through 7 is to think about the doctrine of justification. You might go, that's kind of heady or you know, difficult. I I don't know that I need that in my life right now. Well, let me offer and recommend to you a book that talks about the justification of God, um, the righteousness of Christ that's given to us. 
It's the, called The Bookends of the Christian Life, and it's written by Jerry Bridges and Bob Bevington. It's a great book. It's a great book. Jerry Bridges now, I think, is in his early 80s. And so, you know, as these brilliant Christian men who write all through their lives come to the end, sometimes they, they crystallize things in smaller books, and this is that. And it's only 150 pages long. I'm reading it through now. It's an excellent book. And it basically is talking about two bookends that we need in our Christian life. The bookend of justification or the righteousness of Christ that's given to us as a gift. And the other bookend is the Holy Spirit. Without putting these two ideas in play as we try to live our Christian life, we're like, our lives are like a bunch of books that just sort of like domino effect off the shelf, right? You've got to have these bookends. The righteousness of Christ, you need to know about that, and the power of the Holy Spirit that keeps us going. We can't live our Christian life in our own strength. We need Christ. So, again, let's not think like a Pharisee. Let's go deeper and deeper into the law of Christ, Matthew 5 through 7. And next week we'll be looking at the issue of anger, verses 21 through 26. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are transforming us by your truth. And I pray, God, that we would yield to your truth now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we are dismissed together. A couple announcements as we come to the close of our second hour. Uh, We're going to have some slides up on the screen behind us. It's a four-minute slide presentation. You're not obligated to stay and watch it, but it's here for you to highlight the ministries that we invest in in our camps across across Alaska. We support several missionaries in and through these camps and send several kids from our church and school to participate in uh, the camps. So that's going to be going on. And also, I want to continue to promote fellowship in the body of Christ. And so we have a guest reception that's over here in our chapel. Let me once again clarify that this is a way for you to go to a smaller venue and meet people. Now, some of you are new and brand new just here on Sunday morning. We want to invite you to come to our guest reception. Some of you are are newer to our church. We want to invite you to the guest reception. And then some of you might just enjoy going over there to meet new people. And I want to invite all the rest of you to the guest reception. And by the way, there's, there's food there. So there's food. There's, there's fruit and there's not vegetables, fruit and things. And so it's over there for you, pastries, coffee, etc. If you want to hang out, we want to get to know you all be over there at the end. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you for this morning and I pray that we would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and recognize that we can't live this out in our own strength. So God, we need you. We are needy people. But God, we know that you are transforming us in spite of us by your spirit and by your truth. And God, we thank you for that. I pray now that our church would fellowship, that our body would be alive, that we would be the body to each other and we would enjoy the body life and fellowship that you've given to us as a gift, even on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dismissed.